Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History, a podcast that takes you through the most important, meaningful, but controversial events in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Hello, and welcome again. My name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast. Welcome to all our listeners. Welcome to our patrons on Patreon. Hope everyone's doing well. Um, blessings to all of you. Uh, I hope you're doing well. I want to thank all of you who uh, reached out to me and who uh, uh, um, said prayers uh, for my mother. I very much appreciate it. And um, as, uh, I just want to thank everyone personally. And, and as ever, you can find Controversies in Church History on the web, churchcontroversies.com. You can also find uh, on social media, on Facebook page, uh, um, Twitter, or whatever it's called now. <laughs> Twix? Uh, Twix? I don't know. Twitter? Can't call it Twix. You can get sued. But Twitter uh, and... Um, some I can't remember anywhere else, but those are the three main places, and uh, you can find all of the oh YouTube. Well, I forget I need to re- update the ones on YouTube, but you can find all of the uh, episodes there for free. Remember, if you want to become a Patreon, Patreon, pa- Patron, yeah, Patreon. If you want to become a patron of the podcast, you can get um, episodes dropping early, episode with no ads. You can do that. Uh, some uh, some content that I've been promising. I'm going to get eventually um, uh, interviews started, I promise that. But uh, some bonus material if you want to help out, again, not a major deal. But all are available free uh, as archived on the Internet in several places is the main issue. So thank you again. And welcome to this uh, episode, this uh, new episode, uh, new old episode. Another one of these episodes where I, I do a review of a film or a novel or a book that I've read. And so this time we're doing another film. Uh, and the review is of the Ridley Scott movie, Kingdom of Heaven, the picture about the Crusades, starring, among other people, Orlando Bloom. Came out, I want to say, around 2010. I don't have it in front of me, actually. <clears throat> but I actually uh, wrote about this. Maybe it's earlier than that. I blogged about it, I think, around that time, a long time ago. So this is a retconned blog post, which I've updated for your, for your enjoyment. I stand by most of the things that I wrote back then. So <clears throat> talk about the film. Talk about, you know, and this is the thing I like to do is criticize these films for not being too historically accurate, but it's a little more specific with Ridley Scott. I think he has a, a bias against Christianity, so I'm going to go through and talk about some of this stuff in this, um, uh, in this episode. So without further ado, um, our review of Ridley Scott's The Kingdom of Heaven. I did not see Ridley, director Ridley Scott's foray into the Middle Ages, entitled Kingdom of Heaven, in the movie theaters, and instead watched it on a DVD back when Netflix was still doing that sort of thing. I have to say, it was just as awful as I expected it to be in terms of its historicity. My initial reaction when it came out in theaters was that it would be intolerable, and so I never bothered to see it. I once uh, had the pleasure of uh, attending a lecture by one of the leading scholars uh, in the field of Crusades history at my university, um, a man named uh, the late Jonathan Riley Smith, he was a late of Cambridge University. And if my memory was correct, I asked him, uh, he actually referred to, I may not ask him a question, but he referred to the film <laughs> during his lecture as, quote, rubbish. And indeed, my own initial reaction to the film was to describe it with slightly more colorful metaphors, at least in terms of its historical accuracy in one particular regard. I actually watched the film uh, with my housemate at the time, and we both found it so historically preposterous that we were making jokes and talking over the dialogue on the way through the film. So what was so objectionable about Kingdom of Heaven, you might ask? 
Well, first of all, credit where credit is due. It is actually a very good film. In terms of its imagery and cinematography, it's beautifully done, as are most of Scott's films. The performances in the film are on the whole very good. I was suitably surprised by the performance of Orlando Bloom, who plays the main character, Balian of Eblin, uh, and the actor, I can't remember his name, who portrayed Saladin, the Muslim prince, um, did a very good job as well. Uh, Liam Neeson, who plays the father of Orlando Bloom's character, was very good as usual. And the lovely Eva Green was very uh, captivating and mysterious as the Princess Sibylla, who's the pr uh, sister of the King of Jerusalem. Uh, and I've always had a very big crush on Eva Green. She's a beautiful woman, right? So anyway, but uh, wonderful performances. It, it didn't engage in any of the sort of cliches you sometimes get in these films. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven did not have that, you know, that scene at the end of the movie where the bad guy and the, and the protagonist duke it out mano a mano with swords. There was none of that. Although Balian and Saladin do talk at the end. It's a little different. The dialogue wasn't the best, but it was, it was serviceable. Costumes and the sets and the, the visual apparatus of the film was quite good. And probably realistic from what I can tell. I like the way Scott uses CGI. Um, he's clearly filming on location somewhere, but he just uses that to enhance the, the shots. And so this is far superior to the sort of excesses you get in films like 300, which are just way over the top of this stuff. Um, but in short, overall, its production values were quite high. Scott is an excellent visual artist, uh, especially when considering the, the scale of the film. I thought it was a really lovely uh, depiction of, uh, in some ways, of, of, of the, you know, as far as you can get, the medieval Middle East, in visual terms. The problem, and the thing that Scott doesn't do very well, is it capture imaginatively the beliefs of the people in the past with whom he does not already sympathize. Kingdom of Heaven has a typically warped Hollywood view of the Middle Ages, at least current, current year uh, Hollywood anyway. Uh, I've blogged before on the tendency of films to dumb down complex historical realities, and I do understand the need to distill some of the, the complexity uh, in these time periods to fit the time frame of a roughly two-hour film. But that is not what is going on here. Rather, the complexity of the Crusades, and it is a complex uh, set of events. You can, by the way, check out my, my, uh, um, my uh, lecture on that. Actually, I think I'm going to redo that one because it was the first one I ever did. It's in pieces on the Internet somewhere. But, um, but especially his view of the, the Christian Crusader knights themselves is pretty much reduced to stereotypes and ones that jibe very easily with Scott's view of the world, which seems to be that of a 21st century agnostic. Uh, I am always amazed at this sort of casual way in which people commit murder in big Hollywood films about the Middle Ages, as if medieval people were somehow subhuman monsters who committed acts of atrocity on a daily basis for no reason. I have noticed uh, a tendency of filmmakers, and other artists to be fair, um, who, in order to get the audience to identify with the film's protagonist, do so by reducing everyone else in their films to a crude caricature of humanity and making their main character espouse quote-unquote modern values. This is, I suppose, a way of making their protagonist relatable to people who know nothing of history. A good example of this in fiction is the late Hilary Mantel's uh, Wolf Hall series, Hilary Mantel is a British novelist, 
which uh, centered on Thomas Cromwell. This is uh, Henry VIII's uh, hatchet man, the guy who got Thomas More executed. It's a pretty malignant figure. But in her series, she makes him the hero uh, by portraying him basically as a sort of upwardly mobile bourgeois professional type. Something, something somebody who's a, a, you know, a skeptical 21st century you know, Brit would definitely identify with and making people like Thomas More vicious fanatics. And so it's sort of a perfect fable for her Lundian audience of quote-unquote anywheres, uh, which is a term that uh, a British journalist named David Goodhart coined to refer to, you know, cosmopolitan types who aren't attached to any one place. In Kingdom of Heaven, this tendency means that virtually every Christian cleric in the movie, we don't see any Muslim religious figures in the film, there are no imams in it, that every Christian cleric is basically a fiend. The start of the film, Balian's wife has committed suicide. Balian is Orlando Bloom, the main character, and the local priest refuses her burial. And he tells Balian uh, when he when he comes to ask him why, he tells Balian that the people of his village want him gone because he is a bastard, he's illegitimate, and that his wife will burn in hell unless he goes on crusade with his father. When the priest for whatever reason, also reveals to him that he has cut off his wife's head for totally unexplained reasons. Balian runs him through with a sword. And we are meant, I guess, to enjoy this. Then there are the Knights Templar, who are all bloodthirsty to a man. Everybody with a cross on their chest is a, is a bloodthirsty murderer. They start a war with Saladin by indiscriminately slaughtering Muslim villagers. Then there is the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem. At least I think he was supposed to be the patriarch of, Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem. It's not clear that Ridley Scott uh, is aware, uh, was aware, that there were Greek Christians in Jerusalem at the time. This is the 12th century, late 12th century. Uh, or of the differences between Catholics and Orthodox Christians. And so when the city is invaded by Saladin, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, uh, who's a cowardly figure, advises Balian to surrender and, quote, become Muslims, we can repent later. Every single clergyman in the film is either venal, cowardly, or bloodthirsty. And I could be wrong, but it seems to reflect a deeper prejudice on the part of the filmmaker to judge from the choices he has made. With the knights, things are a little bit different. Uh, the knights, uh, their religious beliefs appear to have been plagiarized from a book that uh, William Monaghan, the film's screenwriter, picked up in the spirituality section at Barnes & Noble. Liam Neeson's character, Godfrey of Ibelin, the father of Balian, uh, Orlando Bloom's character, is an upright man, and Balian is chivalrous as well, when he even, uh, at least when he is not committing adultery casually uh, with, uh, <laughs> with the Princess Sibylla. More importantly, Balian and the other sympathetic characters are just like us, quote-unquote. Balian proclaims at one point in the film, because he's going through a you know, crisis of faith, allegedly, quote, that God does not speak to me, unquote. And then he has lost his religion, to which his interlocutor, a, uh, a hospitaler knight, uh, played quite well by the actor David Thewlis, replies that, quote, religion is nothing. It's what a man practices that matters, or something to that effect. At one point, the Princess Sibylla, played by Eva Green, informs Balian that, quote, Muslims want unity. Christ wants us to decide, unquote. Near the end of the movie, when Saladin's laying siege to Jerusalem, Balian stands before the people and 
rallies them by giving them a stirring but idiotically anachronistic speech about the meaninglessness of religious divisions between Christians and Muslims, uh, one worthy of a Unitarian minister. Now, it would be tedious to point out every single instance in this film, but it is clear we are meant to identify with the characters who are tolerant, doubtful of their own religion, but kind to the Muslim other, quote-unquote, while anyone with any amount of Christian, uh, many amount, anyone with any amount of conviction in the Christian faith is an evil, is an evil cardboard cutout designed, designed to make the audience hate them in order to gain their sympathy for the main characters. <clears throat> All of this is pretty typical of a, a historical Hollywood schlock in films of this nature. But what I find fascinating about Kingdom of Heaven is the way it distills almost per perfectly a sort of modern pluralistic sensibility, one that abhors actual particular and concrete, concrete traditions and beliefs with real and usually very messy histories, and instead likes to find refuge in a, in a sort of generic humanity shorn of any such complicating features. And it portrays this almost perfectly. Um, the bland, sterile nature of this generic humanity reminds me of the, uh, the work of the political philosopher, John Rawls, a liberal political philosopher, who uh, argued that when we consider principles of justice, we have to treat human beings as if they had no history, no sex, no gender, no race, no class, nothing. Just a sort of gener generic humanity. Or maybe even more fitting for this film, uh, brings to mind the contention of the Jewish philosopher Immanuel Levinas that the quote-unquote face of the other can never actually appear to us because otherwise we redu would reduce the other to features of the quote-unquote the same and therefore the visage, the face of the other can only be known as an abstract cultureless humanity. That's been pretty heady stuff to drop on you there but basically it says you can reduce humanity to these abstract features and the film embodies this quite well I think. Um, Bloom himself is kind of a bland figure, not that, he's a good actor, but he's not exactly, you know, someone who takes on uh, his character and changes from role to role. Kind of bland, but acceptable to everybody. Uh, the King of Jerusalem, the Leper King, uh, Baldwin, um, Baldwin III, I believe, in the, in the, um, in the film, of course, has no face. He wears a mask because he's so disfigured from his leprosy. And uh, Eva Green's character at one point, Princess Sibylla, um, maybe because of her beauty, I don't know, cuts off her hair in a gesture of remorse, uh, if not repentance. Um, apparently because she didn't kill her execrable husband, Guy de Lusignan is an awful human being. And so there's just this weird sort of, you know, just getting rid of the particular features of these people's faces. It's weird. And in terms of their beliefs, as noted above, most of the characters are just as bland and generic. When Balian first meets King Baldwin, Baldwin exhorts him to be good to those who are weak, to protect pilgrims, and all these other sorts of things, but without ever mentioning the Christian religion at all. The character of Saladin is less diluted, uh, however, um, maybe because it's difficult, really difficult to screw up such a compelling historical figure. Saladin was a very compelling historical figure even for Hollywood directors. But even he is reduced by the end of the film to his own sort of generic magnanimity. When Balium uh, asks him uh, after he surrenders uh, Jerusalem to him, 
he asked him, what is, the, what is Jerusalem worth? And, um, and the guy, the good actor who plays Saladin, he responds, nothing, and then turns his back and walks away, and then stops and turns back around and says, everything. And I can't think of a more vacuous response, really. Um, Saladin could just have easily have said, you know, Jerusalem is worth everything because the Prophet Muhammad had commanded his followers to pray there, um, or because of the Dome of the Rock, or a hundred other reasons that actual Muslims find the place to be sacred. Uh, and yet that would violate the film's basic idea that tolerance is everything, and if we just abandon everything that is complicated and distinctive about our own cultures and civilizations, we'll somehow all live in perfect harmony. Or we would, if it weren't for those pernicious Neanderthals who, cont who continue to insist on the meaning of those differences, or something. I'm probably giving the film way too much credit for thinking through all this, but it's something that never ceases to irritate me. And this was confirmed for me uh, when I watched the, f uh, the film originally, because the DVD came with behind-the-scenes features, so you get to hear what these people are thinking when they're doing this. And Ridley Scott claimed he had had the idea for a film years before, generically called Night, which unsurprisingly never went anywhere. Uh, the screenwriter, as I mentioned before, William Monaghan, claimed he had read a few books on the Middle Ages, but doesn't specify which ones. And um, Scott um, says at one point there he likes to shoot more than he needs, and maybe you know there were some scenes that didn't make it into the film, so perhaps Monaghan's original script wasn't that bad. But from listening to him and listening to Scott, uh, you tend to get the impression that you usually get when Hollywood types talk about history, namely that it amounts to nothing, mainly it amounts to getting the clothing to look right. And then, um, and Scott actually spent a good deal of time talking about that, which again is understandable. Scott is a visual artist. I cannot blame him for what he does not, does not know. Or to paraphrase my old dissertation advisor, I cannot blame him for making the film that he set out to make. What I do blame him for is for claiming that it is in any way an accurate depiction of medieval history. And now look, this is, this is partly the rant of a disgruntled historian uh, who I know and everyone knows very well. This is where people are going to get their view of history from. Uh, and so I feel you know, duty-bound to correct all of these errors that will be doubt be placed in people's minds. And, um, and so, yeah, it is frustrating to hear all this stuff. And what's frustrating, I think I've mentioned this before on this podcast and elsewhere, is that it doesn't, really, doesn't need to come down to a stark choice between historical authenticity and good drama. I talked about this in the episode on the Tudors. Um, and, and it's true. Sometimes filmmakers and playwrights do have to alter timelines and other things to tell the story in a dramatic way. There are parts of history that simply really can't be made into good drama. But then knowing when and where this is possible is part of the artist's task. Uh, making a film or writing a novel that's historical in nature is about drama, narrative tension, uh, in a way that history is not. And so a good drama means a good story, while history, though a narrative, is not, not necessarily about that. Um, the word history comes from the Greek word hysterein, which means an inquiry of some sort. And that means historians set out to answer a question like, for example, the ancient historian Thucydides uh, his, you know, wrote his history of the Peloponnesian War. You know, he wanted to uh, answer, how did Athens, the great city of the Greek world, to lose to the barbarous Spartans, right? In other words, history may have to undermine its own drama to tell a true story. 
And again, artists, you know, dramatic artists can't worry about that as much, but they had to bring them t- together, right? Uh, I think, uh, to do better than they normally do. Uh, in any case, whenever you write history, you're taking on a great responsibility because the people whom you are studying have no one other than historians, usually academic historians, to speak for them, and no one really listens to them. Um, I remember one time someone saying that you should always speak up for somebody when they're not in the room, and I've always thought this was a just and right thing to do. The worst thing you can do to someone is misrepresent their ultimate beliefs, and you wouldn't dare do it to someone who's living today because they could sue you. Uh, unfortunately, the dead can't sue anybody. Well, it's just not, not totally true. Estates can sue, but you know what I mean. Um, and so filmmakers feel, feel free to make up whatever they imagine medieval people believed, and which is usually something that flatters their own sense of who they are. Oh, aren't we wonderfully tolerant, tolerant unlike those fanatical Knights Templars? This sort of thing. This is what really grates on me when I watch these films. I believe I've said this before, but this issue of getting their beliefs right, this is why anachronism in regard to clothing, machinery, and the like is not so big of a deal. It's why when Shakespeare in his Julius Caesar has a mechanical clock striking in ancient Rome, doesn't really harm its historical authenticity very much. Um, because he get, otherwise gets their beliefs right. The uh, Elizabethan, Eng- uh, Elizabethan English men and women were raised in a culture that still had some affinity with the ancient Roman world. And so Shakespeare was able to enter into the mores and beliefs of a, uh, of a you know, pagan Roman world more sympathetically and imaginatively um, than Hollywood directors are. This is what frustrates you, is why can't you do that? Um, and what's so disturbing about uh, Ridley Scott's sort of generic brand of agnostic tolerance is that it apparently cuts him off from being able to understand any civilization that is not tolerant in the sense he understands it, which means he is incapable of imaginatively, imaginatively entering into virtually any civilization other than his own, that of contemporary Western society. This is why his Gladiator, which is a great film, and as well as Kingdom of Heaven, come off as little more than fables about contemporary Western life dressed in funny clothes. Or at least that's how it often seems to me. I should stress that I do not mean to pick on Scott in particular. Um, He is, in fact, a fine artist in many ways. And I must say, I have actually seen far worse attempts at uh, depicting history on film. I have to do this. Uh, I know, I know, he's a traditional Catholic, but Braveheart uh, is one of the worst I have ever seen. (laughs) On the great film, very bad at history. The Patriot was also bad. Um, Maybe the worst was a film, maybe I should do this one too. Uh, Years ago, I think it was 1970, someone did a biopic of Oliver Cromwell, (laughs) the butcher of Ireland, uh, the Puritan uh, dictator of of 17th century uh, England. Terrible movies, so other people have been worse, to be sure. And I do think, in longer perspective, I give Scott a lot of credit because he really does, he really is the person who made, you know, attempting big historical blockbusters uh, attractive to new, to new audiences. Nobody else had done it before. Gladiator was the one that set all this off in a lot of ways. I've always found his films entertaining, and at the very least, you can say something like Kingdom of Heaven, it got a rise out of me. So that's, that's always, if you're not going to please people, you just get, get something, a reaction out of them. And um, 
And uh, his films are worth arguing with because of that, for that reason. And I wouldn't have any problem at all if, if he didn't appear to be trading on the supposed historicity of his films. Wouldn't have any problem at all with him. And uh, in fact, uh, Ridley Scott has a new film out now. Uh, biopic, another biopic. This time on Napoleon, which I think is streaming on Apple+. Plus. So it might be, another time, uh, might be another time for another review to see if he has learned anything. I fear, however, there is a better chance I will enjoy the film than that Scott will have learned to appreciate a Christian worldview or any other worldview other than his own. That is all for this episode of Controversies in Church History. If you like what you heard, please go please go visit us on Spotify for podcasters, where host our podcast, where you can uh, find all of our uh, previous episodes. Again, you can also check out the website, uh, churchcontroversies.com, uh, church where I have been blogging a little bit more lately, try to do a little bit more of that there. I have links to my other uh, writings in places like Crisis Magazine and 1 Peter 5. Um, Please go and find us on social media. Say hi on Twitter or whatever it's called now. Like our Facebook page. Find us also on YouTube. You can listen to the stuff there. Uh, one other thing as well. I also have, this is not related to Catholicism at all. I have a Substack uh, newsletter uh, called Pierce Unbound. I didn't want to, to tell people about this stuff. Uh, Pierce as in P-I-R-S. Uh, Pierce meaning, referring to Pierce the Plowman. So... Uh, in any event, I, I uh, write there. I've been writing more lately, trying to write more lately. I've been writing um, a sort of, um, well, travel narrative, a sort of photo essay about a, uh, a trip I took last year to uh, Dodge City, Kansas. So I do a little bit of historical tourism writing, if you want to, historical travel writing, I guess, if you want to say that. I want to start doing stuff now about Florida in that vein now that I'm living back in that state. But uh, currently, I don't know what episode. Well, I have a bunch of different um, um installments in that series that one's going on you will also find if you're interested in this sort of thing i'll also uh, write about things that are not catholic on that on that uh, sub stack i'm going to be reviewing oppenheimer uh, another day or two that'll drop and so you get my thoughts on oppenheimer which is again not a catholic related thing but if you like that if you enjoyed this my commentary on film uh i'm gonna go check out the commentary on oppenheimer in a couple days and once again thank you to everyone uh, out there for listening for subscribing for uh, supporting the podcast i'm grateful for you grateful for your support. I'm humbled by it. Um, uh, remain in uh, my prayers, and I hope you will keep continue to pray for me and my family. God bless you all, and you'll be hearing from you soon. Take care. <laughs>